Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullick. We've uh, had to take a couple days off here to, due to some health concerns, but we are back. We're good to go. How are you doing, Rachel? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm actually pretty fired up for this topic today because we always get lots of questions, and my goodness, is it a topic of conversation at this time of year? Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to talk about, like especially in the off season. I feel like it's a topic that comes up because teams are looking to, you know, move around money and try to maximize their salary cap efficiencies. So, what is the topic du jour today, Rachel? We're gonna talk about everything salary cap. So management in the modern game, where it's been now to where it is. Pierre LeBrun had a really good article that we'll touch on. Um, we'll talk about maybe suggestions that we have for how the cap could evolve, how teams build with the current cap, advantages, disadvantages. We're going to hit it all. I'm super down for it. So I don't even know where to start with this because it's such a broad topic. Uh, I know you made a lot of notes heading into today, as you always do. You're always super prepared. So uh, what was the first uh, aspect of this you wanted to touch on? I think just talking about how it evolved because, I mean... It came in after the lockout in 0405, and there was that salary rollback. But then you had teams that really had to cut money. So Detroit and Toronto had to cut, I think, like 20% of their their roster because they just couldn't get under it. And now you're kind of seeing that everyone's gotten used to it. It's been 15 years now. What are some changes, some inefficiencies that teams have identified, and how it's sort of being looked at differently than it was 15 years ago? Yeah, it's funny because in the 90s, you could pay players basically whatever they wanted. It was funny, like Matt Sundin, I think, was making like 9 or $10 million when no one else was making close to that. The Sergei Fedorov controversy. There's a lot of cool stuff that was happening at the time, but ever since the salary cap came into place, you have to be a lot more careful with how you're spending your money. If you have an albatross contract like a Milan Lucic, that can really set you back. So I think it's interesting to see how the league is slowly shifting towards maybe paying players differently. I know we've seen this in the MLB where... For the longest time, older players in their 30s got rewarded for their previous play. You know, if you were a free agent at 28, at 29, you'd get a big, long contract for a lot of money. And the younger players in their young 20s wouldn't earn that much. They'd be on their entry-level deals, and they would have to earn their big payday later in time. I think we're starting to see a, a shift now, and it's in the last year or two, really, towards younger players starting to get paid a lot more money. You look at the Jack Eichel contract, the Leon Dreisaitl contract, Austin Matthews is a fantastic example. A player's really digging their heels in saying, I'm in my prime years between ages 22 and 28. I don't want to take a discount during those years. I want to get paid for those years. And you look at the contracts that are big-time mistakes, the Andrew Ladd contracts, Kyle Poso, Milan Lucic. This Brock Nelson one doesn't look too great. It was just signed today. You don't want to sign those contracts because those tend to turn south in a hurry. When a player hits 30, 31, unless they're a, a superstar franchise type player, you don't want to be paying secondary players into their 30s because that's when they tend to regress. So I think we're starting to see a shift towards younger players getting paid a bit more, but it's a slow shift, just like every shift is in the NHL. Yeah, and I think the point you brought up about the shift from playing older guys to younger guys is a big one because before it's like oh we have to pay him for for what he's done and 
there's definitely like a few examples of that. I mean, the Leafs had the Muskoka five, um, famously, and now you're kind of looking at even if you compare it directly to the Leafs again, they're gonna have to pay guys like Nylander. They had to pay last year. They have to pay Matthews, and they're gonna have to pay Marner, Kapanen, and Janssen. You're you're paying guys for what they're actually doing as opposed to what they've done. And to be fair, like that's a way better use of money than anything. And I also think it bodes well with the whole cap hit on dollars versus the percentage of cap. So before it was, oh, this is just his cap hit, whatever. But now it's when you're making comparables, what is his percentage of the cap when he signed the deal? So if you wanted to compare Leon Dreisaitl to Mitch Marner or you wanted to compare Braden Point to whomever, you would look at, okay, in the year that they signed their contract as an RFA, what percentage of the cap did they take up? Instead of saying, oh, well, Dreisaitl is better or worse than Marner, so Marner should get this much more, this much less than Dreisaitl. Yeah, because the cap's $83 million this year, or at least heading into 2019. When Dreisaitl con- signed his contract, it was what? Was it $75 million at the time? Uh, might have been like 77 maybe? Or 72. Oh, you think it might have been a touch I think higher. it might have been okay. a touch higher, but it's kind of like, it's a very good point, and I'm seeing it, like, you wrote an article that had cap percentage included, um, and I think it's a way better way to look at it, as opposed to just actual dollar, because the dollar number goes up every year, pretty much, because of either the escalator, or there's a new TV deal coming, um, it goes up for I know that's a big factor in some of the modern contracts, there's expected to be a bit of a cap boom in the next couple years, because of the new TV deal. Exactly, and I mean, with ESPN and NBC hopefully getting involved on the US end, um, that's going to be pretty big. And so you would kind of expect it to go up, obviously not explode, but I would expect it to go up. So when you're looking at it, no matter what, the dollar figure changes, but the percentage is the same. 100% is 100%. Like that's never going to change. So I think you started to see a shift in the last two or three, maybe even one or two years where it's, okay, what is the percentage of the cap this player is going to take up and what can we afford to have him take up? So instead of having a contract that's just straight up 9-5, you saw Nikita Kucherov's a couple years ago and it was like, what was it, 4.662 or something like that? For three years and he was still an RFA at the end of it. I think that's the most ridiculous bridge deal I've ever seen signed. His agent got fired later that year, but... Uh, that was that was a bizarre one. <laughs> yeah, he probably deserved to be fired. I mean, think about how much money Nikita Kucherov deserves to be making over the past two seasons. A lot. <laughs> yeah, like literally a lot. And then the other one is signing bonus money. That's a big one we've seen in, in recent years. And I also find it interesting, the lockout protection that's in these deals by heavily putting in signing bonuses in the year of the lockout so that you're basically not paid for the number of games you play that year you're paid like almost entirely in signing bonus money for the year that's expected to be a lockout that's kind of lockout protection for the players owners obviously aren't a big fan of that because that's money that they have to give players even if they're not playing but that's something that players are really fighting for and from a a rich team like whether it's toronto or the new york rangers or a team like boston vancouver teams who have money are able to give out those you know heavy signing bonus laden contracts and that's something that players are always a fan of. You know, the more guaranteed money you can get, the better. Yeah, and I think one of those things where you talked about the rich teams are able to do it because some smaller market teams just don't have the ability to be signing bonus checks of 10 and $11 million to star players all on July 1st. If you look at it, um, 
Panarin is probably going to demand a contract of something similar where um, it's very Tavares-like in the fact that he's only getting paid salary of $900,000 or whatever it is and the rest of it is signing bonus money. So whether he plays or not, he's getting all of that money on July 1st. And there are smaller market teams that cannot afford to be writing checks for $100 million to a variety of players on July 1st. And so I know we saw we saw Ottawa a few years ago. The Derek Broussard for Mika Zibanejad trade was really interesting because they traded away Zibanejad. They didn't want to pay him his new contract. They agreed on a deal in principle, but didn't trade for Broussard until after he'd been paid his signing bonus money on July 1st. So it's one of those interesting ways where a team who doesn't have the financial muscles to you know pay their players as much as uh, they, they the other teams can when it comes to a player like Derek Broussard getting an extra $2 million on July 1st, that's a factor that comes into play, whether we're talking about trades, whether we're talking about eating contracts, because teams like Ottawa, teams like Arizona, they can eat heavy cap hits, but they can't eat heavy dollars. And that's something that really comes into play with these signing bonuses. Right, because a cap hit's just a number. So you saw Datsuk getting traded to Arizona in theory. We've seen Chris Pronger traded a few times. Exactly. You see the potential of Patrick Marleau being traded. Ryan O'Reilly was paid his signing bonus and then traded on July 2nd. Although St. Louis, I would remove from that because I think they can afford to pay the signing bonus money. Um, but you're seeing players traded. Oh, can't be... We can't trade him till after July 2nd because we got to pay his signing bonus money on July 1st. And they have until, I believe it's midnight on July 1st to actually pay that signing bonus. Yeah, I wasn't sure how that actually worked. I knew it was July 1st. I wasn't sure the timing of everything. But it's funny. That's never something I really think about because I'm on cap friendly. You know, I tend to just look at the AAV and I go, okay, that's what the player is worth. But there's some other factors that come into play. You know, there are signing bonuses. There are... Uh, bonuses for uh, performance. I know when you look at Zidane Chara's contract, it's not very AAV heavy, but it's very, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but performance bonus laden. Jerome McGinley signed one that, like that late in his career where even though he wasn't earning that much money on the cap hit, he would later get a performance bonus if he hit certain statistical milestones. I think that's that's a good idea for the older players, right? So let's say um, Joe Thornton, for example, although he might be a bit of an, an anomaly, but Chair is a great example. You sign them to a lower cap hit, but hey, if you play X amount of games or if you score X amount of goals, if we make the playoffs and you play X amount of games, we'll give you this extra money as opposed to saying, no, here's $3 million and then you're saddled with it. So it's maybe money as opposed to guaranteed money. Oh, there's the third member of the podcast. Yes, she has been very barky today. So. I was just going to say, I find it surprising that we don't see more of those contracts in the NHL because that's basically the way that NFL contracts work. You know, you see the big figure that comes out for the, the next quarterback who signed his huge mega contract, but only about half of it is guaranteed. The other half are all performance bonuses. In the NHL, we tend not to see very many performance bonuses. We only see them for really, you know, older players later in their careers on a short-term deal. We tend not to see it for the younger players in their prime. but Unless they're on I'm the ELC, that- right? Exactly. And the ELC, those are the performance, uh, the Schedule B bonuses and the Schedule A bonuses. They're all part of the CBA. But if I'm not mistaken, you can throw performance bonuses into a contract, but we rarely see it in the NHL. Exactly. You absolutely can do it. Um, But I think a lot of things, and this goes to the guaranteed contracts, which they don't have in the NFL. Um, You can have a certain portion of money guaranteed, but when you have the rising cap and you have the guaranteed contracts which other than the buyout, and at that point, you still get two-thirds of the contract anyways, um, and it stays on the cap. Like, 
the full amount of the contract still stays on the cap. You're finding inequities in contract value to player value. So you end up paying more because you think this guy is going to do this as opposed to maybe saying, okay, we know you'll do this, but if you do this, then we'll pay you that performance bonus. Whereas the player is kind of like, no, I want it all. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. So we're talking about kind of interesting ways to go about, you know, navigating the salary cap, whether it's bonuses, you know, whether it's signing your younger players and avoiding older players. In the landscape of 2019, the summer of 2019, what do you think is the best inefficiency on the market? And obviously, you know, that you could just say, well, draft well, get a player on their ELC. Their, their first three years in the league, they'll make less than a million dollars. And even if you throw in performance bonuses for someone who's drafted in the top 10, the most someone can possibly make is like three and a half million. So that's basically nothing for a star player. So outside of entry-level contracts, which are always going to be the best efficiency in the NHL, it's why drafting is so important. What do you think is, is the best market and efficiency to really uh, target in the offseason? If you're a team like Toronto, if you're a team like Minnesota, who's looking to make some big-time moves, if you're a team like Philadelphia, who doesn't really know what they're doing in the next couple of years, are they rebuilding, are they building, or are they a contender, should they bottom out? What do you think is the best way to navigate the salary cap right now, and what do you think the best market and efficiency is? I think it's what we've been talking about, which is the performance bonuses, because, I mean... That's the best market inefficiency for the teams. Obviously, the players have found their market inefficiency, and it's the RFAs getting paid. That is their market inefficiency. Um, and they're taking full advantage. But you look at the performance bonuses, and I'll bring up one contract, like Essa Lindell. I would say that he was probably overpaid a bit. And I think he owes about 90% of that money to John Klingberg. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I'm not saying he's a bad defenseman. I'm just saying I don't think he's a $5.8 million defenseman. I think he's like a number four who's had the benefit of playing with a number one for his entire career mostly. So that that would be my opinion at least. And when you think about it, like Haskinen is going to be up in two years. And if I'm Haskinen, okay, well, I'm already better than Lindell. So my number starts at the minimum of probably seven, if not eight. And let's think about the cap going up in the next couple of years when the ESPN deal kicks in. I mean, defensemen like Haskinen might be making, you know, nine million. We don't know where the cap's going a few years from now. Right. So I think performance bonuses for a team are inefficient like a market inefficiency now it can be dangerous because if you make them very attainable then you could really screw yourself for the next season right so that's what happened with chicago when panarin's rookie bonuses kicked in all of a sudden they were well over the cap for the next year and they had to shed some salary and the only way they were able to get rid of a bad contract they traded away brian bickle's contract but the only way carolina was willing to take on brian bickle's contract is if they attached tivu teravainen who's one of the bright young stars in the NHL right He's now. He's on their so top it, it line. <laughs> exactly. It comes at a cost. Exactly. And and so Pierre Lebrun actually had an article um, about how teams, there's no player or there's no team left that's making more than $8 million on the cap and how maybe that's how you have to build. Well, when the cap's going up, I'm sorry, but like every single team is going to have at minimum one $8 million player, if not a, a $10 million player at some point. Like, are you telling me that... I can understand what he means, though. When it comes to cap hit percentage, was what we were talking about earlier. Right. Maybe he's referring to the fact that maybe you can't afford to play a bunch of mega stars, you know, high cap hit percentages, and hockey is more of a weak link sport as opposed to a strong link sport. I know that there's been research that's indicated that you need superstar talent to win and that, you know, it's your strong links that matter. It's not your weakest link that matters, but... By looking at the success of teams like St. Louis, success of teams like Boston, even a team like Carolina, 
is there an argument to be made that, hey, maybe just by having no bad contracts on our roster and having a lot of depth and signing good players to really cheap deals, you know, the Jacob Slavens, the Nino Niederreiters, the Brett Pesci's, you look at St. Louis, the Ryan O'Reilly's, the Colton Pareko, a top 20 defenseman in the NHL who's barely making anything. Is that maybe a good way to go about uh, building a cup contender in the next couple of years? I think it's an interesting argument. Personally, I'm not sure if I agree with it, but I definitely understood where it was coming from. Yeah, I think that you absolutely can win with those players. Like when you think about it, when Sid signed his contract, I think it, it was worth like 17% of the cap or something like that. Like it was a really high number. His first contract or his second the eight, contract? Eight seven. Okay, so it's funny the the eight seven was actually cheaper cap percentage-wise than his first uh, deal coming off of his ELC. I mean, he signed 8-7 both times, but the first time he signed 8-7, it was 17% of the cap. Right, but look, Pittsburgh, look at Pittsburgh. They're the model of of being good. It just so happened that they've signed those contracts so long ago that now the cap has gone up so much that the contracts have come down. But are, are, if I mean, you... they also got a bit lucky that Crosby's superstitious and wanted an $8.7 million contract when he easily could have negotiated for more than 10 at the time. Right, but again, like even Malkin at nine five. I mean, yep. Latang at six, uh, at seven point two five. Yeah, yeah. Like those are. In t- it all depends, and this is what I'm saying. In the fact, it, it's when the contract is signed, right? Because let's say the cap goes up to a hundred million. You're gonna tell me that McDavid making twelve and a half million is not a ridiculously valuable contract? That's gonna be the most valuable contract in the league. Or McKinnon right now. Like if, that one's it, still. That one looks like a misprint. So if McKinnon was an RFA today or last year after his heart trophy nominee season what is his number i mean it has to be double digits has to is it i'm wondering if he can negotiate for more than mcdavid and say that the cap's gone up and i deserve even if it's a slightly lower percentage than mcdavid i deserve 13 million right so let's say now you're now mckinnon's making six right now so when ranton goes to negotiate Number one, how can you say that you are this much better than Nathan McKinnon? Because you can't even say that you're better than Nathan McKinnon. Well, yeah, but I, if I'm his agent, I'm not. I'm saying that McKinnon signed a bad deal at the time. He signed it before he broke out as a true superstar, and that wasn't smart. You know, if you're Nathan McKinnon, you should have bet on yourself. You should have taken a shorter term deal and then cashed in. You didn't, and now you're, you know, you're not reaping the benefits. I'm Miko Rantanen. I came top 15 in the NHL in scoring in the last two years. I deserve a huge payday. So I, I, that's that's the argument I make if I'm Rantanen. Yeah, but I'm just talking about as a team, like how do you manage that? Because when I'm, if I as a team, I'm saying, okay, like Nathan McKinnon is clearly my best player. I mean, I don't think that much is up for debate. He's probably like top three in the league right now. He might have pushed himself to two after that playoff run. Yeah, probably uh, in terms of being able to put the team like, on his back and single-handedly just doing things playing 25 minutes a night and just like completely taking over games it's it's it was so awesome to see because we rarely see players play that many minutes but in a key playoff game they played him that many minutes if only Toronto's coach did something similar that would have been great so here's one for you Braden Point's an RFA so is Sebastian Ajo they both play center Braden Point had 41 goals this year and did he hit 100 points or was like 96 How, how many points did he hit I want to say it was like 96 or 97. 92, actually. He only played 79 games. Okay, so how can you, with a straight face, say that the center who scores more is worth less than the winger 
who scores less. How can you say that with a straight face? I mean... You can't. If Braden Point played in Montreal or in Vancouver or in New York, this guy, they'd be talking about him like he should be getting paid 12 I mean, if he, play, if he played for Toronto, dollars. we'd be talking about offer sheets for $14 million. But you know. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> the guy's a center. And he has 40 goals. There's last time I checked, there's not a whole lot of those in the NHL. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated to see how this offseason plays out because Rantanen and Marner have an argument to be made that they should be the two highest paid wingers in the NHL because you're getting them for their prime years. And we really haven't seen players have that kind of production since Patrick Kane coming off of his ELC. And then you have Braden Point, Sebastian Ajo, two star centers coming off of their ELCs. We're in the player empowerment era. You know, Austin Matthews getting a ton of money. Jack Eichel got a ton of money, despite not the greatest production in his first two years in the league, but he still got $10 million. So I'd love to see what these four RFAs get. I kind of hope they all get north of $10 million, but personally, I don't see it. We'll, we'll see what happens, but I think this offseason is going to be a great indicator of how much RFAs are able, able to leverage the, themselves in negotiations because obviously the mid-tier guys, you know, the second and third line guys are never really going to be able to, to earn that much money. They're, they're going to get pushed around by the teams. But the true superstar talents that you have to lock up, I'm really curious to see if they use offer sheets or maybe le- leverage offer sheets to help earn them more money because that's something we really never see done. You know, teams have just agreed that they're never going to use offer sheets because it raises the value of players. Maybe players seek out that mechanism this offseason to try to drive up their price. I'd, I'd be very curious to see if these star players go for north of $10 million because I think on ice value, they deserve it. It's just these players have historically never been given that kind of money. So it's an interesting back and forth and it's going to be a really interesting summer. And there's your market inefficiency right now that I actually just forgot about was the offer sheet. Because like the, if you offer a player less than $4 million, I think it's only a second round yep, pick. And it's $4.2 million. You could go $4.1, $4.2 million, and you could sign yourself uh, a Kapanen or a Janssen are the, are the guys that we look at in Toronto. But there are other mid-tier and players. And I'd give up a second, round, a second round pick for that. Yeah. Like, I would. And, I mean, you could look at Winnipeg's situation. Is there anyone you could grab there? Because they're going to be tied up against the cap this summer. So... Nah, there's no one you could really grab there. I'm, I'm looking at Patrick Lane, Kyle O'Connor, and Jacob Truba. They're all going to earn much more than $4 million. But it's interesting. You can look at it as, as a mechanism to grab a second-line player on a team who's tied up against the cap. So I hope we see it. Again, as a Leafs fan, I hope we don't. But as a, as a fan of hockey and as a fan of player movement, as a fan of the NBA, where this stuff is common practice, we see offer sheets signed all the time. We see star players change teams all the time. In hockey, it's very rare, but... Again, like you say, a second-round pick for a player of Kasperi Kapanen's quality, you make that trade 10 times out of 10. So, Oh, God, yeah. So shouldn't his agent be saying, we're, we're signing an offer sheet on July 1st, and then let's negotiate from there? Right. And a lot of the reason that teams can't afford to keep these middle kind of players is because they have boat anchor contracts. And, I mean, we got asked a lot about how do you get rid of a contract like Lucic or Bacchus or Seabrook or Alsner. And if you notice, none of those players are making more than eight or nine million dollars. These are this is where I think the mistakes get made is when you're signing your four to six defenseman or your third line forward to anything more than four million dollars, I think that's when you get yourself in deep, deep trouble. 
Like, say, Brock Nelson. Yeah, I don't know about that contract. Um, He's hit 50 points once in his career. Yeah. And uh, he's making $6 million for the next six years. I'm not saying he's a bad player. I just... Oh, no, he's a good hockey player. I just think that contract's going to age very poorly in the next couple of years. Again, if he was 21 or 22, I don't mind that deal. But he's 27, turning 28, and, you know, into his 30s, that deal's going to age very poorly. So, again, you're paying for future value. You're not paying for what a player's done. If we're projecting what a player is going to do, at age 28, at age 29, you're on the decline. So you don't want to pay for what a guy's done in the past. You want to pay for what a guy's going to do. That's part of the reason that I think young players deserve to be making a lot more money than they're currently making. And we're starting to see the market slowly adjust for it. But as we've seen from the Brock Nelson contract, the market hasn't quite caught up to where the actual value is. And I think, to be fair to the Islanders, I think Brock Nelson probably gets that contract on the open market anyways. Oh no, he does. It's just what a player gets on the open market. Right, so you can't criticize them because some team is going to sign him to that and they wanted to retain him. Does that make it a good contract? It doesn't, but you... But they would rather say, okay, we would rather have this player than allow him to go somewhere else for the money that we would have paid him anyways. You know what I mean? If that's the case, maybe you should have traded that player earlier and got some value that's, out of yeah, it. Yeah, fair enough. So how do you get rid of, let's say, a Lucic contract? What like, What is a trade? It's really hard. I mean, I guess you either attach a young asset to it, like we saw Tivu Teravainen in, in Chicago traded to Carolina, or you find that mystical David Clarkson trade where there's a player who has a, an LTIR injury and the team can't afford to pay him, so they, they trade it the other way. I don't know. It's it's very difficult. It's very rare. That's why you see these Albatross contracts usually either bought out or, or t- the team just waits it out because no team's willing to take those on. I don't know. What's what's your solution if you're Edmonton and you need to move out Lucic? Or what's your solution if you're Chicago and you need to move out Seabrook? Or... Uh, David Backus or Carl Alsner in Montreal, what, how do you do it? I guess you have to find a team that is either tanking or is you know has tons of money available, and you attach an asset with it to get them to take it. But if it's a four or five year you know commitment, I don't know how you're going to be able to convince that team to take the contract. See, I think a lot of a lot gets made about the Lucic contract, but I don't think enough get. I don't think the Carl Alsner trade gets talked about enough because. Like, I was playing in the AHL this year. Like, that was not a good contract, right? That's a the definition of a boat anchor. People complain in Toronto about Patrick Marlowe. I mean, at least the guy's playing. Holy crow. Yeah. I mean, he had, I, that was the issue, is that he was playing late in the third period of a game where he really needed a goal. But that's another conversation. Yeah, but at least he could provide, like, let's say he played on the fourth line. He could provide valuable minutes there. But Carl Alsner just, like, wasn't doing anything. I mean, on a third pairing, maybe penalty kill, maybe. But yeah, he's making four point six billion for the next three years. Three years, I feel like you could trade to a team like Ottawa because I think Ottawa is very clearly going to be in the tank for the next year. Yeah, but or two. Do, does Eugene want to pay that? If I think you have, maybe you have to eat money, maybe do you eat half of it. Yeah, see, like then that Carl Olsner at two something that is very manageable because I think he's absolutely two point three. Yeah. Or like Milan Lucic at $3 million for the next four years. Can you convince a team to take oh, I think you could. But I don't think Edmonton can afford to retain. Pay. Okay. How much can you afford to retain? Because I think at some point you have to retain on this player. Uh, probably 25, 20, 25%. Because think they're probably going to have to get rid of Koskinen too. So we're talking eating $1.5 million. Milan Lucic, four years at $4.5 million. You, you think you can find a team to take that? Mm, 
then that's the problem. I don't think you can. Exactly. That's what I mean. I'm like, you have to retain. That might be the only way. We talk about attaching an asset. Unless you attach what your eighth overall pick to him. That's what I mean. I'm like, you, retaining salary becomes the easiest way to move this player. And that, the best way to avoid this kind of situation is just not sign the bad contract in the first place. And again, that's why I'm very hesitant about paying UFA prices. You know, what a guy earns on the open market is typically not what he would earn if he was an RFA. That's just, you know, the pressures of the open market, right. unless it's a superstar talent. You know, you sign a Panarin in free agency. You sign a John Tavares in free agency. Even though Eric Carlson's health uh, injury history is a bit concerning, he's the best defenseman in the world when he's healthy, so I'd pay him. You know, if he hits the open market and I can acquire the best defenseman on the planet, even though it's risky, I'm okay taking that risk on an Eric Carlson type of player. I'm not okay taking that risk on a Milan Lucic kind of player, on an Andrew Ladd kind of player, on a David Backus kind of player. And as much as I love Jake Gardner, with back issues at age 29, I'm not sure if I'd feel comfortable giving him a five- or six-year deal on the open market. So that's just what happens when you have these aging players approaching free agency. It's usually smart to let them go and try to replace them from within on a much cheaper contract. And that's why the teams who spend a lot of money on July 1st usually aren't making it very far in the playoffs. Right. So then... Let's talk, like, let me ask you a question. Does the salary cap actually encourage parity? Because we've talked about a couple things where, like, rich teams can kind of finagle their way around doing things. Like, does it encourage as much parity as perhaps the NHL thinks it does? Well, do you want to compare it to a, a league with, like, a luxury tax like the NBA or a team that, or a league that just doesn't have any cap like baseball? Oh, let's talk about the NBA because I know we're going to talk about how we want the cap to change. And the one thing that I think, or two things I think we need to add in are the bird rule and potentially luxury tax. Okay, so let me start on the extreme end of the spectrum. If you look at soccer, you look at baseball, there's no salary cap. You know, Barcelona can spend whatever they want on a player. The New York Yankees or the LA Dodgers can spend whatever they want on a player. But you want to spend your money wisely because if you're, you know, spending... $30 $30 million per year on Albert Pujols and he can't even play in your lineup, That you just burned $30 million. That's not very helpful. On a 10-year contract, you just burned $300 million. That, that's not going to get you very far. So you still need to be smart with the way you spend money. But again, if you have $200 million in your budget as the LA Dodgers and a team like, I don't know, it was, it was a very uh, cheap team. Like the Athletics only have 60 million. I was going to say Oakland. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the money ball team that everyone likes bringing up. I was going to think of even a cheaper team, like maybe the Rays. But again, you have Miami. an advantage that they don't have. The interesting thing is that drafting well is still the best way to acquire talent at a cheap rate which is why the smart teams like the Astros, like the Athletics, tend to perform very well. And yeah, you can, you can have a lot of money and you can spend it around, but if, if you're the, the Philadelphia Phillies you know, or you're the New York Mets and you're not spending it very wisely, you're still not going to do that well. You're not going to make too many deep playoff runs. So I, I hear what you're saying in that you know, if these teams didn't have a salary cap, they might still spend their money unwisely on July 1st and it wouldn't really matter at the end of the day. But... It does matter in some regard, I think. I mean, if, if you're a team like the Leafs, they would have been able to re-sign JVR the other year. They would be able to, to re-sign Jake Gardner. They'd be able to trade for players that hit the open market that they might not have been able to trade for. Maybe they would have been in the Ryan O'Reilly sweepstakes, you know? So I think it does matter when it comes to acquiring players, but I, I understand your argument in that smart teams are still going to be very smart and spend their money wisely, and dumb teams are still going to spend their money very poorly, regardless of how much money they have to spend. So if we were to introduce a luxury tax system, do you think that would benefit the league or do you think that would hurt the league? Um, here's the thing, like 
I think a few things need to be done first. I think contract length needs to be taken down to five years. But is that to protect the teams from themselves? Or is that to maximize player movement? That's or, what I want. I want player movement. And okay. I want player options. I want players to be able to opt out. I want teams to be able to opt out. Like, I just... When you look at the NBA, every summer, it's so entertaining. I'm like, yes, please, more of this. I mean, right? two and, of the five best players in the world are probably going to change teams this summer in Kevin Durant and Kawhi Leonard. I hope they don't. It would be great if they you didn't. do not say that about Kawhi Leonard. Oh, Kawhi's staying. Uh, Kawhi, you should stay. Hashtag Kawhi, you should stay. But but one thing I want to talk about is, when it comes to the parody thing, and this is way overblown, is the tax thing. Oh my god, he's going to play in Tampa or Vegas because there's no tax. First of all, if you actually sat down and did the math, it only ends up being about 8% not 17 or whatever everyone parties around saying it is it's about eight percent over the life of the contract which i get is like a significant amount of money but i mean realistically if you have 10 million dollars or if you have 9.2 million dollars you still have 9.2 million dollars we could also make the argument that playing in canada and earning your money in american dollars is very helpful especially when the dollar is going to plummet too like it's already at point two seven or one point two seven, it's gonna go even further. Like it's probably gonna end up at one point four at some point. It's gonna be like and the so, British pound compared to us. So. <laughs> yeah, and that's just one of those things where I it's the tax thing I think is completely overblown. Um like oh Braden Point is gonna make is gonna take six million dollars and Mitch Marner is gonna get 10 because of the tax thing it's like okay everyone relax i think it might have more to do with the fact that braden points teammates have all taken discounts and it's more of a culture thing as opposed to a tax thing exactly but let's like the parading around saying like he's gonna do it because of the tax thing is it's inaccurate like it's misleading Uh, I, i i think it's also uh it it does factor in you have to think it does well yes you're paying more in new york than you are in Florida, you're playing more in Toronto than you are in Alberta. Real estate prices also come into account there. I mean, you know, how, how expensive is it to live in a smaller town versus living in a big city? These these factors all come into play. Right, but at the end of the day, like like I said, if you're making nine million bucks a year, I don't think you're quite worried about where you're living. Yeah, but I mean, these we're talking about negotiations that come down to players fighting over $500,000 per year. So if we're talking about, you know, five or 6%, of a, an $80 million deal, I mean, it matters. It does matter. Yes, just not to the extent where uh, one player playing in Florida gets $3 million per year less than a player playing in New York or Toronto. Like, that's just not accurate. Yeah, not not, not to that extent. Not to that extent. But I think it might be a bit more than, than you're willing to admit. There's, it's, a, it's a factor, yes, but the whole thing of, oh, he's only going to play in a... Or he's going to sign in Florida or... Nashville because of the tax thing players that's not the first thing the players think about they think about their families they think about where they want to play like Twitter loves to talk about it and I'm like this is not what they're thinking about the tax thing is probably not even in the top five of things they think about it might not even be in the top 10 I'd be very curious to find out what makes Tampa Bay players take the contracts that they take because I just sometimes I don't understand it but maybe it just comes down to all of them agreeing that we're going to take 80% of what we're worth because we think that's going to give us the best chance of winning but very few other teams are doing it so I I don't know it's weird what other changes do you want to see in the cap so 
Um, I see here that you have written down you want to see a, a bird rule or a bird exemption. So we should explain what the NBA does. So in the NBA... Can you do that? Because I can't. Yeah, no worries. Uh, I'll, I'll explain it like in layman's terms because I'm not going to go into like you know the, the nitty gritty of the CBA. But basically, if you're at the cap, let's say you're capped out, but oh my god, we need to re-sign Mitch Marner. The bird exemption lets you re-sign a player and let you go over the cap if that player has been on your team for the last three years or more. So basically what this encourages teams to do is draft well, and you have a a really good player who wants to stay with his home team, but oh no, we can't afford him because we're capped out. That's okay. You can go over the cap to re-sign that player. You can't go over the cap to sign that star free agent that you want. You can't go over the cap to trade for that very expensive player that you want to bring in. But if it's a player that you drafted and has been on your team for the last three years, you can go over the cap to sign him. And then that's what's called the luxury tax. If you're over the cap, you pay a specific tax to the league. So let's say you go $5 million over, you pay a percentage of that to the league, and it gets divided up between the rest of the teams. And, you know, that way the smaller market teams, at least they get some money out of this. It's not just them, you know not reaping any benefit from other teams spending more money. At least that money gets divided up among the teams. It encourages players to stay with their teams. And the reason it's called the Bird Rule is because the Boston Celtics had a dynasty in the 80s, and they were capped out, and Larry Bird really wanted to stay with the the Celtics. And it was good for the league if Larry Bird was on the Celtics. So they just made a rule so that Larry Bird could stay with the Celtics. And it stuck, and in the long term, it ended up being a good idea because it allowed teams to hold on to their franchise players and kind of build these cool super teams. You know, the Chicago Bulls, the Boston Celtics, the LA Lakers. and The Golden State Warriors. The Golden State Warriors drafted their team, and then Kevin Durant signed with them, and they became the most hated team in the world. But I just, I, you need to establish the fact that Curry, Thompson, Draymond Green, those guys were all drafted by Golden State. So I'm just, that's a quick aside. But <laughs> Yes, but the fact that they're allowed to keep those guys together is, is a pretty big thing, because, I mean, I don't care any complaining coming out of Golden State that they're not going to be able to keep their guys. like. But you hear complaining around the league that the NBA is not fun anymore because it's just predetermined that Golden State's going to go to the finals. But basketball is a different sport than hockey because the best team typically wins in basketball and Golden State's been the best team for the last five years. In hockey, the best team rarely wins. Yeah, we have teams getting away with hand passes. <laughs> Oh man, it's uh, there, there's again we we keep bringing up this video, but there's a great video to show the differences between basketball and hockey, and how one is much more luck and variance, uh, you know, determined, whereas the other is much more skill based, and the better team typically wins. But we're getting uh, ahead of ourselves when it comes to implementing a luxury tax. What do you think the pros and cons are that for the NHL? Because teams would be able to go over the cap to re-sign their own players. And a team like Toronto, even though this Mitch Marner business creates a lot of drama, it wouldn't be that much of an issue this summer. Or what's a really good example of a team who had to let a star walk to free agency? Panarin. Artemi Panarin. Artemi Panarin would have had to be traded out of Chicago, and they could have kept the star players altogether in Chicago. Okay, so... Do you think that would be good for the league in the long run? Or do you think that leads to you know, uh, teams who can afford to go over the tax having an unfair competitive advantage over teams who can't afford that, like a Carolina or an Ottawa. I I mean, I like the luxury tax idea because it injects more money into the league. So take, for example, take Toronto, because the Mitch Marner thing is a big, big thing, and that's all anybody wants to talk about. We can talk about Braden Point. It's another example of a team was capped out and would like to pay a player right. lots of money, but they might not be able to afford Okay, it. so yeah, let's let's talk about Tampa Bay then. Let's say they want to pay Point 10 million bucks. All right, ten million bucks, nice number. and clean. Let's say it puts, they now have to pay a luxury tax. Well, that luxury tax 
should be spread around the other teams in the same way it's hockey related revenue it, or it should be count it should be handled like that where it's split among the teams so if a richer team like the rangers or the leafs or the habs or the blackhawks want to pay luxury tax well then the smaller market teams are going to get money from that luxury tax so yes it might mean that the big rich teams are able to retain their players and whatnot but as an owner of a smaller market team now you have a team paying luxury tax like you're getting money from that not to mention and i might get added to the high hill about this it is better for the nhl when the big market teams are doing well because the tv ratings are better oh you went there oh there it is so you're basically saying that you want carolina to come in last place you heard no, it here first. Rachel Dory hates small market teams like the Carolina Hurricanes. It doesn't. <laughs> if the NHL wants to negotiate a TV deal, but right, and you are trying to have leverage for playoffs, right? You want X amount of dollars for the playoffs. Well, you look at basketball, for example. They can pretty well guarantee that the Rockets and the Warriors and whatever team LeBron James is on, except for this year because he was hurt, um, now Milwaukee... Uh, the Celtics. Milwaukee's a small market like, team. But you could pretty much guarantee that the Stars are going to be playing late into the season. So there, there's going to be opportunity for ad revenue. In hockey, you can't... The best player is not in the playoffs and probably won't be next year either. So you can't... like You're not able to negotiate from a position of strength because you can't say, oh, we're going to have our Stars on display because you don't. Right. I think that's the problem with hockey as a whole is that just it's so random at the end of the day that it's difficult to guarantee that your best players are still playing late into, you know, May I or have June. an idea, though, and I feel like it's it might be a little bit off the wall, like the bird rule and the luxury tax is sitting right there and everyone can pick at it. But I kind of have an idea. Are you going to go like no salary cap, no draft? I feel like this is like we're going off the rails. here. No, 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 no. So we talk about the trade deadline and how it's not entertaining at all, right? And because teams just can't do it because of the cap issues, right? Oh, that's ridiculous. In the NBA, it's much tougher to make a trade and, and teams still find a way to make tons of trades at the deadline. But they have a lot of I don't accept that, that reasoning. I know, I'm but sorry, that's the reasoning that we get pushed, right? So what if, what if we did this? If the cap is null after the deadline, so you have to be cap compliant and until like the deadline or until like a certain point prior to the deadline. So like a week up to the deadline, let's say, or whatever. And then you can go over the cap to acquire players. So let's say who's hard up, who was hard up against the cap this year that wanted to acquire a player. I don't know. Tampa Bay probably. Yeah. Okay. So let's say you're Tampa Bay and you want to go and you want to acquire, uh, Artemi Panarin. For your cup run, because you believe this is the best shot you're going to have, and you know that Panarin is a UFA at the end of the year. You can go over the cap, so the, basically the cap doesn't exist on both ends, so you can go over it and you can be under it. So, so the selling teams can sell left, right, and center because they don't have to be at the floor, and the buying teams can buy it up and load up for the playoffs because by the time you get to the trade deadline, you know if you're a good team or not, right? But then the caveat there is you get your cup run, you have to be cap compliant by July, so on July 1. 
So I think you can go over the cap by like 10% or something like that in the summer. In the summer, yeah. Right? Yep. So let's say... Up until October 6th or 7th or whatever it is. Or, yeah, yeah, the start of the season. So a team, because Panarin and Bobrovsky, right, are, are UFAs this summer. A team could have loaded up and said, I want Bobrovsky. Um, like Boston could have gone out and said, we want Bobrovsky and we're going to go over the San cap. Jose would have been a great destination. San Jose. Since they didn't have goaltending. And so... Yeah. But because he's a UFA, they're going to be cap compliant. So it encourages, I think it would encourage player movement via trade at the deadline. And it would also allow teams to actually load up. And it would allow the teams that want to sell for a bunch of draft picks to sell. Because we've all talked about the way you get better is by drafting. Well, I mean, if you wanted to acquire something or you wanted to give something up because you're selling, then... That's a great way to do it. So philosophically, looking at your ideas, your, your idea of a luxury tax or a bird rule is all about being able to go over the cap because the current cap is, is too constraining for teams. And then your idea of being able to go over the cap at the trade deadline and then for the rest of the season is about being able to go over the cap because it's too constraining. So it basically sounds to me like you don't like the idea of a hard cap in general. No, I don't. And I, I prefer like the cap being no at the deadline because it's not even just about going over the cap. It's the teams can't make trades because they'll fall below the salary floor. So think about Ottawa, for example, this year, they're obviously trying to recoup assets, right? What if they could have traded a bunch of players, let's say, and they would have been under the floor. Well, the current system doesn't allow that, but what if they would have had trades for players that would have put them under the floor and they could have recouped a bunch of assets, whether they're young players or draft picks, and that would have made them better in a few years. It, it there's both it goes both ways but as long as you're cap compliant july 1st or whatever within a certain amount on te- on july 1st i think it could be entertaining not only for trades but i think it would make the playoffs super entertaining see i i want a luxury tax in the nhl i mean I, i've heard the argument for no salary cap altogether and i i like the way it works in baseball i like the way it works in soccer i think it makes things more entertaining but we're we're talking about a league who gives out a loser point in the regular season for a loss in overtime to help yeah to help you know create parity which it really doesn't all it does is create more randomness when you really think about it but this is a league that really wants parity and loves the fact that it has parity if you ask you know uh gary bettman his favorite part about the league he'll probably talk about the fact that you know even the the most the richest teams in the league and the you know the the least uh financially thriving teams league all have an equal opportunity to succeed there's lots of parity I don't think they're going to want something like this in the NHL, even though I think it would be for the the best of the fans. You know, if we're talking about a luxury tax, we're talking about a bird rule. If we're talking about UFA years coming much earlier, you know, if we're talking about a four-year maximum on contract lengths so that we see lots of trades like we do in the NBA, I doubt the league wants that. I, just, I doubt it's going to happen, and it frustrates me because I feel like the NHL gets in its way when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to entertainment a lot of the times, and I think this is one of those examples where the more player movement you have, the better. Or at least, maybe you don't want to go as far as the NBA, but you're on the opposite side of the spectrum right now where teams are terrified of making trades. You should encourage them to make trades. You should be encouraging players to change teams through free agency. You should be encouraging more money coming into the league with a luxury tax so that you can sign players to more money and that way they get what they're actually worth. But we don't see it because they're afraid of change and they want parity and it's a, it's a frustrating dilemma. And it's part of the reason why I say I love hockey. I love hockey so much. It's my favorite sport. But sometimes I really can't stand the NHL. Yeah, there's definitely a lot there. 
Let's, uh... <laughs> I don't want you to get fired from your next job already. Yeah, but, just yeah. not even hired Just not going to touch that. Um, <laughs> let's do the mailbag. I mean, we kind of, like... All right, real quick. quick yeah, time. we kind of touched on, like, eight questions in our thing, but... Yeah, someone asked uh, about Sackick looking at uh, UFAs for Colorado. Would that be wise since they have to lock up, you know, Kel McCarr, Sam Gerrard, Tyson Berry? And I think we already touched on the fact that you can sign a superstar free agent and get good market value on it. You know, uh, an Artemi Panarin, an Eric Carlson, in my opinion, even though the, the injuries are concerning, I think with a talent that, that is, is that great, you go for it. You don't want to be going for the mid-tier guys. You know, if Anders Lee hits the open market, I'd be afraid of what he gets. You know, if, if you're looking at a defenseman like Jake Gardner, as much as I like him, I'd be afraid with, you know, how that deal is going to look in four or five years with his injury history. So you want to go in the high end of the spectrum for the superstars, or you go in the low end of the spectrum. Find someone on a one-year deal who's underperforming and, you know, a prove-it kind of deal. Or sign someone to a PTO in August. You know, those tend to be the most efficient contracts on the market. And it's, fu- it's funny. It's very hard to find efficient players in free agency because, you know, you're competing with 31 other teams. Or Sorry, I guess 30 other teams until Seattle comes into play. But you can get a, a player for more than he's actually worth if it's a superstar because it's almost impossible to overpay superstars. And if it's someone at the very low end of the spectrum who's on like a $1 million deal. But you don't want to be paying for those mid-tier guys. Yeah, I actually think that Colorado's in a really unique position in the fact that they have tons of draft picks. Um, if I'm Colorado and I'm Joe Sackick, I'm not going after UFAs. I'm going after RFAs. And I'm going after some of the mid-tier RFAs. It's funny. We talk about how unrestricted free agency, you don't want to go for the mid-tier guys because you're going to overpay for it. But oddly enough, with offer sheets, you can still underpay the mid-tier guys because of the fact that if they're $4.2 million or under, that's a good deal for a Casper Kapanen, you know, on a five-year deal. Exactly, and that's exactly sort of what I was getting at. So if you're Colorado, go after a Jacob Truba, go after Andre Burakovsky, go after... Um, they have to sign Nikita Zadorov. Um, but even that, like, go after Andreas Janssen. I think he'd be great there. Yeah, they really need the the depth up front. Exactly. So go after these kind of guys. Or if you really want to get funsies, um, go after Warensky. See what happens. Or I, they have the assets to pull off a big trade this offseason, and they need the forward depth up front because they were one-line team basically all season. I love their blue line. They have three very good right-handed defensemen. They have some puck movers. They have some interesting goalies in that, you know, Philip Grubauer is pretty good. I don't know if they're going to re-sign Varlamov, but they need the forward depth. So maybe use those assets and see if you can bring in a talented player. Jason Zucker is apparently on the market. Go grab him. He'd be a great second-line forward for you. I don't know why he's on the market. It's kind of like Nino Niederreiter. I just don't get it. He's very, very good. This is something I wanted to bring up when we were talking about market efficiencies. I feel like the way that players are evaluated, or at least forwards, the way that they're paid is just based on points. You know, when we're looking at players' comparables, we're looking at how many points per game that player have. That's not the only way to evaluate a player. And I think it results in us really underrating the two-way forwards who might not have the great point totals, but are really good at driving play. And I think Jason Zuck... Mark Stone. Mark Stone's probably the second best winger in the NHL after Kucherov. There's an argument to be made that he's been the best winger in the NHL over the past two years. Uh, you look at someone like Jason Zucker is a great example. Doesn't have the sexy point totals, but when he's on the ice, his team is dominating play. I mean, Nino Niederreiter is a great example. Tevu Teravainen is a great example. Those guys are all very underpaid relative to their on-ice value, and it's because you're paid for your points. And if you do something other than points to help drive success— 
you're really undervalued in the current market. And that's why I think going after Jason Zucker this summer, I like 30 teams should be interested in him. So I think uh, you brought up a good point with points. Um, RFAs, especially um, in arbitration, you pretty much get to use like points, points relative to time on ice, time on ice, um, goals, assists, things like that. You're not allowed to use any analytics in an arbitration hearing. So, which I mean, it has to change because that's, it's how teams are evaluating players now. Um, or it's how teams should be evaluating players. Although, I like mean, if you have one player who has 60 points, but he gets cratered every time he's on the ice and you have a player who has 50 points and he's living in the offensive zone and has done so regardless of who he plays with for the last three years, that 50 point player is way better, but he's not going to get paid as much because forwards are basically paid based on how many points they get. Exactly. And so I think that in arbitration, there's an, like, it's just, it's outdated in terms of what can and can't be used. And you're right, you can't just be using points to evaluate a forward. And in the same way, you can't be using just ice time to evaluate a defenseman. Um, Andrew McDonald contract. That was actually exactly what I was referring to. Um, and so I think there has to be a more updated way of looking at things. And when you allow people like Andrew Thomas and Alex... Um, to be on the open market like the Wild have, that really hurts your player evaluation because the, they're war on ice. Like the, Those are two of the smartest people in hockey. And I think, honestly, like you have to have a different way of, of evaluating because you're go- that's how you get the boat anchor contract. You're going to get yourself in trouble. I've got a good one. Someone asked, when's Rachel coming back to, to New Jersey? So I feel like that's a, that's a question when it comes to not only when are you going to visit New Jersey, but what's the deal with you and uh, working for an NHL team and whatnot in the future? Because I don't want you to ditch me on this podcast. People are wondering how much longer this is going to last. All right. So if you've listened this long, then I guess I, I can sort of say that what's going to happen. So the podcast is going to continue into next season. And, and potentially... <laughs> for a a while um i'm definitely taking uh a step back and i will when i'm ready to and when everything's figured out i will tell people what i'm doing um and i think that it's gonna be good however to answer l's question of when i'm coming back to new jersey um i'll be back there this summer so when i do come back there new jersey slash new york um there's definitely a few people i need to see and um catch up with Uh, my best friend down there got engaged so I'm definitely gonna have to have lunch with her um and then in the summertime I think Ian and I are gonna sort of figure it out we might do a weekly one we might do event based so we'll do like draft we'll do free agency and then if like crazy trades happen or we might do question based podcasts we'll figure it out when one of those big RFAs sign their big deals i think that's going to be a landmark one whether it's Ranton and Aho Point Martin whichever one comes first i feel like that's going to be a huge day right and so but i think like the main part of this is is this podcast is going to continue so Rachel's not going anywhere folks and neither is Ian for now we don't know which one of us is going to go first if either of us go somewhere first and so hopefully um, we get at least next season. But yeah, you're stuck with us if you want to be. 
I like your optimistic thinking. You're like, you know, hey, uh, this this podcast is gonna last for a little bit longer, but not too long. You know, it's a <laughs> it's like a short term relationship. You know, it's fun while it lasted, but <laughs> you have one foot out the door already. I can sense this, Rachel. No, man, I like the staff and giraffe podcast. Ooh, I like it. You put out a graph today, and then Adam Wilde was like, I love, uh, you know, Rachel Dory. Now she's putting out graphs and everything. I'm like, whoa, what is this? You're like, you're going to be doing the staff and graph podcast without me now. You don't even need me anymore. And then I just tweeted at you a, a gif of a giraffe. A <laughs> staff and giraffe, because I can't pronounce Saginaw. Oh, there, we're getting closer. There we go. Alrighty, we will, um, I guess we'll talk next weekend. Right? We kind of. It's, sorry, this was a little late. Uh, there were some health issues that needed to be taken care of. So it's life. Sorry, yeah. sometimes life gets in the way. But yeah. we'll be back next week to break down the Warriors and uh, Raptors. Uh, you know, NBA final. Oh, sorry, getting ahead of myself. Because neither of us potentially will have a voice on Sunday morning to record. So. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, I'm going to Game Six. So let's go. It starts at 8:30 on a Saturday night. There may or may not be a few beers in me at that point. It's going to be a fun night. All right. I'm looking forward to it, and I will not have a voice the next morning. <laughs> no, you will definitely not. And uh, I guess we'll chat next week. Sounds great. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.